Hi, I'm Ann Phillips. I'm a singer, pianist, composer, conductor, producer, and I'm on Robert Miller's Follow Your Dream podcast. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dreams, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Bruce Belland one of the founding members of the Four Preps, America's first boy band. They hit the top of the charts in the early 60s with two hits, 26 Miles and Big Man. I love them both. Bruce previously was a guest on the podcast. I asked him back now following the release of his fabulous memoir, Icons, Idols, and Idiots of Hollywood. We'll have to find out which is which. My Adventures in America's First Boy Band. And as you know, I like to feature a song of mine in every episode, underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I've chosen the song Aches and Pains from my album Summer of Love 2020. I figured that at Bruce's age, if he has any aches and pains, you wouldn't know it because he's got the youngest, sunniest, happiest disposition that you could ever know. So Bruce Bellin, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast again. Thank you, man. I, I've been looking forward to this. We had so much fun last time. This is great. You, uh, you, you're one of these guys that does his homework and asks all the right questions and knows what he's talking about. So I always have fun when I'm talking to you. I try to. Well, listen, for anybody that didn't listen to the first episode, let me give a quick little recap here. We talked about Bruce's experience in the music business, and you mentioned how you met Ricky Nelson and David Nelson. I think you met one of them in the nude, but I'll let you yeah, that's right. talk about that. And you guys were stars on the Ozzy and Harriet show, which is amazing. And we talked a little bit about Nancy Sinatra and the date that you went on. And I said, uh-oh, when you bring her back home, if you got a knock on the door and Frank answers, you're in trouble. And we also talked a little bit about Dick Clark. Did I get all of that right? You sure did. Well, you always do. You know what you're doing. <laughs> all right. Well, listen, start again. Tell everybody, how did you get into the music business and how did you form the four preps? Well, first 10 years of my life, I grew up in Chicago, and uh, very early on, I sang my first solo at age four. My father was a preacher, and he got me to sing in a Sunday morning service when I was four years old, and I loved the reaction of the audience so much of the congregation, I decided at four years of age, I want to be a singer. And I dreamt about a place called Hollywood, where all the stars live and make records, but I was in Chicago, and how do you become a star in Chicago? Lo and behold, when I was 10 years old, my father, who, as I say, is a minister, accepted the ministry of the West Hollywood Community Church. And suddenly there I was, two blocks off the Sunset Strip in Hollywood, where maybe my dream might come true. So I was a fan of Bing Crosby and the Mills Brothers and, and so many of the great singers of that era. So from age 
four on, I want to be a singer. And from age 10 on, I'm in Hollywood where I think maybe I can make it happen. And then I get to Hollywood High. And of course, Hollywood High had a reputation for spawning all kinds of great careers. Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland, Ann Miller, Sarah, Sarah Jessica Parker, later Lana Turner. So going to Hollywood High, it was sort of part of the milieu there that everybody was striving for a career in show business, including the four of us. And uh, we made a recording of a dance we sang at a Hollywood at uh, UCLA. And somehow that hand that uh, tape got into the hands of a very powerful personal manager in Hollywood named Mel Shower, who managed, among other acts, Les Paul and Mary Ford. So obviously, Robert, he had a big in at the Capitol Tower. So he submitted us to the Capitol Tower with that recording from the UCLA dance. And rock and roll was coming in and Top 40 Radio was coming in. And they all said, we need some young people to deal with this whole young thing. We were supposed to be Capitol's answer to rock and roll, but we're not rock and roll was the only problem. You know, what's really amazing to me is when I read your memoir, which is terrific, by the way. Thank you. You started out meeting celebrities even way before this. I think you met somebody on your paper route. Am I right? That's right. When I was about 14, I got a paper route in Beverly Hills across the tracks from Blue Collar West Hollywood, where we lived. West Hollywood was a very low-income, blue-collar community, but we were butted right up against Beverly Hills. And I had a good gift of gab, so I ran into the circulation manager from Hollywood Citizen News, which was the local paper at the time, and convinced him to give me a paper out on Rodeo, Cannon, and Beverly Drive in Beverly Hills, which is Stars Row. And I delivered to Lucille Ball and Jimmy Stewart and Danny Thomas and Harpo Marx and uh, Ira Gershwin. And one day, uh, a guy came out of his house on Beverly Drive and said, can I talk to you for a minute? Show me how you throw the newspaper. So I showed him how I threw the paper towards his porch, and it never landed anywhere near his porch. So he said, can I show you a couple things that might improve your aim a little bit and get the paper on the porch where it belongs? So he instructed me on how to fold the paper in a different way than I had been, put the rubber band around it, do a backhand throw and aim it. And he showed me, he demonstrated when I threw it, went right on his porch. So I uh, tried it myself, and lo and behold, it worked. And he thanked me, and as he headed back to his house, I realized that was Gene Kelly. And he had taken a good half hour to show this stupid little kid how to get the paper on his porch. So, you know, from then on, I was getting mentored and educated by all these stars that I would run into most of the time by sheer chance. And uh, I just soaked it up like a sponge, whatever they could teach me. I mean, it is amazing how many different people, how many different stars that you ran into in your career, both before and after you became famous with the preps. And you said you went to school at the high school and you had a lot of guys there that became famous. Was Robert Redford one of those people at that time? No, I went to high, I went to junior high with Robert. I did not go to high school. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> junior high, <laughs> which is a whole different thing. What about nursery school? Who did you meet there? <laughs> <laughs> you got a, you got a new writer, Robert. You're you're hot there. Uh, no, I I when I went to junior high, I was very small for my age, and I had white blonde hair, and all the bullies just tormented me terribly. Till a buddy at junior high befriended me and kind of scared off the bullies and became my pal, and it was Robert Redford. Uh, we called him Bob at the time, but later on he became the famous Robert Redford. So yeah, early on in my age, even junior high, I was meeting uh, I was meeting people who turned out to be important. 
All right. And in the music business, this is one thing that I really think was just a terrific anecdote. When you guys were hitting the charts with 26 miles, Catalina Island, okay, I remember that. The Catalina Island was 26 miles away from where you guys were. Am I right? Right. Exactly. Okay. And somebody named Brian Wilson liked that song, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, he did. He told me later that it was quite an influence on him as a teenager. And as you know from reading the book, uh, I cover the event when we once sang uh, an assembly at Brian's high school when he was in the audience as a student. And later on, his biography of uh, Nearest Faraway Place cited that afternoon and our performance at his school is one of the things that inspired him to go for a career and uh, develop his musical ambitions. So that was quite a compliment to hear that. Think about that. That's like having, you know, Beethoven or Mozart in the audience, okay? To have Brian Wilson. Yeah, right. <laughs> wow. And you and you were influential with him. That's even more important. Yeah, he was uh he was eager to learn all he could and he took what we were doing and and ran and quadrupled it and made it world famous, but yeah, he was uh I I'm I'm very flattered and pleased that he acknowledges that we had some uh, something to do with his inspiration. That's that's nice to have. Yeah, it would have been nice, too, if he gave you some royalties, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think he could afford it, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you're right about that. All right, so tell us some more people that you ran into along the way. I think Marilyn Monroe was in there as well. Am I right? Yeah. You know, as I said, we lived in blue-collar West Hollywood, but it, bar it boarded up against Beverly Hills and on Doheny Drive, which was the separating street between Beverly Hills and West Hollywood. There was an apartment building, and one day our, our mailman told us we got a new neighbor in our neighborhood over, uh, over four or five blocks from my front porch. And we said, who is that? He said, Marilyn Monroe. Well, that's all it took. So it, it was 880 North Doheny Drive. I remember the address. So for a while, all us horny adolescents would gather on the garage the roof of the garage next door to her apartment, figuring one day she'd come home, Robert, a little too tired to remember to close the drapes, and we'd, we'd get a strip show. Well, of course, it never happened. No free peaks? We come never on. even saw her. But <laughs> a couple weeks later, my buddy Ed Cobb, who was one of the original four preps, his father ran a beauty salon up on Sunset, and the father called one day to him, and he was about 15 or 16 at the time. And he said, you got to get up here. You got to get up. I want someone you, somebody I want you to meet. So after sitting on the garage porch forever and trying to catch a whiff of, of Marilyn, he went up to his father's beauty salon. And there she was in a smock in the hallway. And she greeted him and held his hand and flirted with him. So he came back, of course, and bragged about her for the rest of his life that he pressed Marilyn Monroe's flesh. So somebody finally got a chance to do it. <laughs> Did he ever wash his hands again? No, never. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's pretty cool. So you guys had these two big hits. I mean, they were big at the time, 26 Miles and Big Man. I always liked Big Man. I think I like that even more than 26 Miles. It was just a, a very cool song. Tell us, you went on the road, you met you know, Dick Clark and so many others. Tell us about your experience after you guys hit. Well, after we we uh, we got 26 miles, and as you know from the book, the, the first year we made six bombs. I mean, we tried every kind of arrangement and style you could think of, Robert. We did doo-wop. We did hardcore rock and roll in a song called Where Was You with a honking sax. We did Latin numbers. We did a Burt Baccarat song. We could not get a hit. Got a lot of airplay, but no no sales. So we had been begging for a long time 
for Capital to listen to our little song called 26 Miles, which I had started to write years before in high school on the beach one day. And uh, they finally agreed to let us record the song. Okay, fine, record the song. And uh, we recorded it as the B-side of the promo side. The A-side was a song from a new Broadway musical that Capitol had invested in, and they wanted that to be the hit. Uh, well, one night a disc jockey in Hartford, Connecticut, wanted to take a bathroom break after he had played the A-side, as Capitol told him to. So he turned it over and played the B-side 26 miles while he went up the hall to the men's room. When he came back, the flashboard was lighting up like a Christmas tree. What is that song you just played? Who is that? What's that group? 26 miles across the sea Santa Catalina is awaiting for me Santa Catalina, the island of Thank God, Robert, he had the sense to call the Capitol Tower the next day. How is this for initiative? He called them. He got through the promotion department. He said, fellas, I played the B side of that song. You guys are on the wrong side. Turn it over. Thank God they listened and told Elder Field reps, turn it over, turn it over. It's the B side. Next thing we were know, we were on the way up the charts. So we got 26 miles. Hold on. I want to tell you something. I've had so many guys from the 60s on this show that had the exact same experience. The record label said such and such is the A-side. They didn't believe in it. It went out and some random disc jockey somewhere decided to flip it over and the B-side became the hit. So you're part of a great tradition. Well, you know, when I... When I say in my title, Idiots of Hollywood, I might want to include <laughs> the people at Capitol who made it. It wasn't even the B side. It, it was printed so small, it was the Z side. I mean, you really had, had to look to even see the title. So we got that, and then we're on the road, and our, our A&R man at Capitol called us and said, hey, top 10 next week and 26 miles, congratulations. And we started to pat ourselves in the back. He says, no, listen. The record industry is littered with the corpses of one-hit wonders. If you want to really stick around and have a career, you better make a follow-up that's going to work as well. So Glenn and I sat down that night at our hotel room with our guitars and started to work. And the big expression at that time was big man on campus. So-and-so's a big man. So let's play around with big man. And I'm convinced, Robert, that one of the things that made it a hit was that we gave the girl the last word. At the end of the song, he says to her, the only thing that made me big was you. Please forgive me. You know, here I am. Again. Well, we knew the young women would love to hear that. I was a big man yesterday, but boy, you ought to see me now. Oh, well, I talked big yesterday, but boy, you ought to see me now. I brag too long that you're almost strong. So we came back to Capitol from the road and we sang the song for our pretty people at Capitol. They loved it. The other preps loved it. And we went in through a lot of turmoil and, and turnarounds and setbacks. We finally got it on tape and it came out and outsold 26 miles, as a matter of fact. You know, words of wisdom, all right, always give the ladies the last word. Okay? <laughs> he was smart enough to do it in that song.
Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. As you know by now, I'm a musician, too. I've released 13 acclaimed albums, including a Billboard number one, and I've had millions of video views and streams. I infuse my music into the podcast in several ways. In each episode, I feature one of my songs underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. I also regularly write and record new music, and I release all of my new music via the podcast to my audience consisting of thousands of listeners from 200 countries. It's like I'm performing a concert on a worldwide basis. If you haven't done so yet, I invite you to check out all of my music and my band, Project Grand Slam by going to the band's website, projectgrandslam.com and at the pgsstore.com. You can also find all of our videos on YouTube and you can stream our music on Spotify, Apple, and all the other streaming services. By the way, the song you're hearing underneath my voice right now is called Metro Shuffle. It's from the Project Grand Slam album, The PGS Experience, and it features the great Mindy Abair on saxophone. It's become my go-to theme song for the podcast. As always, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and to my music, and we'll see you in the next episode. Now, listen, tell me that story again, because I think that Nancy Sinatra was somehow involved in getting 26 miles out there. Am I correct? See, that's what I like about you. You do your homework. You ask all the cool questions. Yes, I was going with a girl that was in Nancy Sinatra's social club at University High on the West Side. A lot of recording artists went to University High School, uh, Jan and Dean and uh, Jack Jones and uh, Nancy Sinatra. And uh, we went over to their club meeting one night after the meeting broke up to flirt with the girls. And we brought along our guitars and we sang 26 miles for their club. And that was all it fade out. About two weeks later, I run into Nancy Sinatra at a movie line in Westwood waiting to go and see a movie. And she said, oh, God, when are you guys going to release that song? I said, what song? She said, the one you sang for us. I said, we sang your 20 songs. What, that tw-? And she sang a little of it. She says, 26 miles across the sea. So now I had ammunition. The Capitol had been ignoring the song all this time. I went back to, and potted on the desk and said, Nancy Sinatra likes this song, and her whole girls' club likes the song, and they'll all buy the song, and they can't stop singing the song, please. So as you know, it came out as the Z side of the next release. <laughs> hey, it made it. That's what counts. All right, you went from Nancy Sinatra and Marilyn Monroe to another wonderful lady, and I'm talking about the Gidget movies. So talk about that. Oh, boy. Well, we had 26 miles in Big Man by that point, and we were very much identified with the beach life in, in Southern California. In fact, the cover of our first studio album was the four of us in bathing suits on the beach in Malibu flirting with a couple of cute models. Have you still got that bathing suit? Yeah. <laughs> no, I burned it. <laughs> it, was, it was a really funny old-fashioned. Anyhow, uh, 
So we had a beach image kind of uh, uh, with the people in the industry. So when Gidget came along, a beach song about Malibu and surfers, uh, right away somebody uh, at a MCA, our agent, said, hey, let's submit the preps. We submitted ourselves. They said, fine. And not only that, but we got to sing the title song over the opening credits and do a number on screen in the middle of the movie. So it was a hell of a break for us. It was a break for me because I, I wanted to meet Sandra D and, you know, woo her. But that didn't go too well. <laughs> and then a guy named Bobby Darren came along and threw all that out the window. But that's how we got on Gidget. Our beach image sort of made it a natural for us to be in that movie. Listen, it's just a remarkable story about all these people that you met on the way up and while you were at the top. It's just unbelievable. And of course, those Gidget movies, those beach blanket movies, they were the rage in the early 60s. Yep. And that, that is credited as being the first uh, surfer-oriented film from a major studio from uh, Columbia. And as you know, the book was a big seller before the movie came out. So we knew about the book and we knew about Gidget because Guess what? She was a classmate of Nancy Sinatra's at University High. I don't know. You had such great kids that were in your high school. My high school in New York City was all felons and things like that. I didn't have anybody <laughs> famous. I should have been out on the West Coast. All right, listen, tell us that story about Ozzie and Harriet and how you met David and the nude and Ricky and the whole thing, okay? Well, you know, as I said in the book, I was used to seeing celebrities on my paper route and Zsa Zsa Gabor and all people like that. But I'd never seen a naked one standing next to me. And one day in the locker room at Hollywood High in my freshman year, I look over and there's David Nelson uh, standing there in the nude, <laughs> having been practicing with the football team. He was on the junior varsity football team. I was on the track team. So we got to know each other at Hollywood High in the athletic pursuits. And next thing I know, he was inviting them up to their house after school to shoot baskets and hang out with the family. And I got to know Ozzie and Harriet and Ricky, of course. And when the minute Ricky signed a recording contract, Ricky wanted to do everything. Ricky wanted to do everything like Elvis. So when Elvis showed up on television with a tooled leather guitar case with his name engraved on it, guess who got a tooled leather guitar case the next week? Ricky Nelson. So when Elvis recorded with a male quartet packing here. Guess what Ricky wanted? A male quartet packing him. So they called my our manager and said, can they come on the show and play Ricky's fraternity brothers and backup singers? And we sure did. And we served, we did a couple of seasons on the show as his, uh, as his buddies and singing backup to him in all kinds of episodes through those two seasons. And then the group no, no longer was on the show because we were just got too busy. But I got called back as a regular for two more seasons. So I, I did, a, I don't know, 35 or 40 Ozzie and Harriet's over the years. And it was a great, my very, very favorite people in the world to work with. Ozzie and Harriet, I had a huge crush on her. They were just great, wonderful people. What you saw, folks, was what you got. Good, down-to-earth, decent, decent people. I, I, I love them very much. And they were a wonderful influence and, and a help to me in our career. You know, for anyone that's not old enough to remember this, the Ozzie and Harriet show was one of the great shows of early television. You just don't find shows like that anymore. You know, it was, it was in that same genre as the Honeymooners. You know, it was just one of those great, great shows. So the fact that you were on there for two years with the group and then all that time after that, I mean, what an amazing thing it would be for you. You know, there were two people that had the strongest influence on me in the business. My mom had an influence early on as a, my music teacher and voice coach. But one of them was Ozzie Nelson. And I cite in the book several instances where his 
his way with people, his people skills were so extraordinary. I never saw the man, and this is unusual for directors. I never saw him raise his voice. I never saw him get perturbed or flustered. I never saw him embarrass anybody with a criticism. He he was a, a gentleman through and through. And there are several instances I won't take time to go into where he just rose to the occasion in helping me in my career and at one point helping me with my family. He, he was a, a wonderful man. And I got to tell you something, America, Harriet Nelson had the greatest pair of legs than any TV mother <laughs> on the tube. I, I had such hots for all the young guys in the show. She was saucy. She was kind of a flirt. You know, Robert, she was a cotton club dancer before she ever met Ozzy. She was a divorced uh, dancer at the Cotton Club in New York when she met milk drinking college graduate Ozzy Nelson. So. All right. I didn't know any of that. And I can't think of, you know, America's mom in that kind of fashion. All right. You're blowing my mind with all of this. So. I'm sorry. I hate to ruin your illusions here, Robert. Yeah, please. The image is too, too alien for me. We have been speaking here with Bruce Bellin. Bruce, it's a wonderful experience again to speak with you. Bruce just wrote this terrific memoir. It's 400 pages or something like that. It goes so fast because it's one name after another, one experience, one story after another. It's called Icons, Idols, and Idiots of Hollywood. We've spoken about a whole slew of all those people. My Adventures in America's First Boy Band. Bruce, I want to thank you so much for being back on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Robert. They tell me I'm supposed to mention it's available on Amazon. I suppose people know that, but I'm told to say that. So I've done my duty. And thank you very much as always, pal. My pleasure. Take care now. And we're going to listen to 26 Miles because I think that that's the song that the preps are most known for. I want to thank you all for listening and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Seems so distant, 26 miles away, resting in the water so I'd work for anyone, even the Navy, who would float me to my island dream. 26 miles so near yet far, I swim with just some water wings in my guitar. I could leave the wings, but I'll leave the guitar for romance, romance. Romance, romance, 26 miles across the sea. Santa Catalina is awaiting for me. Santa Catalina, the island of romance. A tropical heaven out in the ocean, covered with trees and girls. If I have to swim, I'll do it forever Till I'm gazing on those island earth Forty kilometers in a leaky old boat Any old thing that'll stay afloat When we arrive, we'll all promote Romance, 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 romance Twenty-six miles across the sea 
Santa Catalina is awaiting for me. Santa Catalina, the island of the romance, 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 rom